Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or eBrief, to give you an inside look into Minnesota child welfare legislation, policies, and practices happening right now in Minnesota affecting abused and neglected children, as well as those who work with or care for them. It is our goal that this podcast is educational, informative, and bold, increasing collective knowledge on these issues, as well as raising our voice to speak up for the needs and the safety of vulnerable Minnesota children. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich German. Last week's news included three stories about covering up clergy sexual abuse of women and children. They involved the People of Praise sect, the Southern Baptist Convention, or SBC, and the Catholic Archdiocese of St. Paul and Minneapolis. These churches have in common that they don't ordain women and have historically employed centralized, opaque, somewhat secretive processes for handling sexual abuse accusations. In contrast, some mainstream Protestant denominations first ordained women in the 19th century, and all of them have done so routinely for over 50 years. So that today, 35% to 50% of their ordained clergy and seminarians are women. In addition, these denominations are governed by lay leaders, which means decision-making is largely delegated to lay persons both in church-wide committees and in individual congregations. So, while not perfect, religious organizations with women clergy and lay leadership have had many fewer incidents of sexual abuse and almost no system-wide top management cover-ups. So, regarding these three stories, First, the actions around sexual abuse at the Southern Baptist Convention came during their annual all-church convention, which included over 17,000 delegates, apparently the largest deliberative body in the world. The big picture context was a battle for the leadership of the church in which a theologically conservative but politically moderate candidate narrowly beat out an ultra-conservative to become the next SBC president. Then within uh, within this overall battle, there was a discussion about allegations of sexual abuse that the denomination's executive committee allegedly mishandled. They were accused of intimidating and retaliating against victims and their advocates, of resisting reforms, and of slow-walking allegations of sexual abuse. Their opponents produced some damning audio tapes to corroborate that narrative. So, as a result, there was a resolution that got passed handily and that took the process away from the executive committee, set up a task force to develop a new process for moving forward, and brought in an outside organization to help. The executive committee initially opposed this move, but eventually relented, and so a new and hopefully more open review of sexual abuses is going to happen. 
It's important to acknowledge that this action by the Southern Baptist Convention is a ripple effect of a 2019 report by the Houston Chronicle, which documented hundreds of cases of abuse and revealed that some of the perpetrators were allowed to remain in their pastoral jobs. This gets to another issue around the importance of the media and how they help to hold institutions of society accountable. Probably the most well-known example of this in the church world uh, is in the movie Spotlight, which dramatically portrays how the Boston Globe exposed the cover-ups by the Archdiocese of Boston, where hundreds and hundreds of cases of child sexual abuse were ignored until the Globe revealed them and forced the Archdiocese to acknowledge that they were real. This ultimately bankrupted the Archdiocese. Now, I personally had first-hand experience with this. I worked with street kids in Boston during the 1970s when a famous priest was known to be using his position to sexually abuse children who were, giving, who were living on the streets. Now, the archdiocese knew of his activities at the time, and each time his actions came to light, he was transferred to a new congregation where he was provided with a fresh group of victims. I knew personally some of the kids that he assaulted and followed him throughout his career in his many ministerial stops. So I especially appreciated the Boston Globe and his spotlight team for bringing an end to his sickening and sordid career. So this brings us to the second story in last week's news, which related to the long-running saga about how the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis has handled sexual abuse of children by its priests. Here are a couple of quotes from letters to the editor of the Star Tribune criticizing the Archdiocese's latest decision by one of its review boards, which left the architect of the cover-up in place as a pastor of a large congregation. The review board recommended that the Reverend Kevin McDonough be barred from leadership roles in the Archdiocese and yet considered him to be fit for his current parish ministry assignment which is as pastor of the Church of the Incarnation in Minneapolis. This is an excellent example of how a centralized male-dominated organization empathizes and identifies with its members and not with their victims. And this is related to a theme that we touched on in our blog last week about how adults virtually always come to the defense of their adult colleagues and friends and believe the adults in a child protection case rather than believing in and empathizing with the children. In the case of the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis, it's particularly ironic because this Archdiocese often proclaims and prides itself on proclaiming what they call the affirmative option for the poor, which refers to their fight against injustice in society. And I've had firsthand experience with this phenomenon as well. When I was a member of the top management team of Catholic Charities of this archdiocese, I hasten, I hasten to say that what I experienced 20 plus years ago has by all accounts changed since the executive director of Catholic Charities has since that time been a layperson. But I was literally in the room when some of these issues were discussed and I heard things that had I not been there in person, I might not have believed. I'm not going to repeat the anecdotes in detail, but the general theme was Quote, we can do whatever we want and whatever we think is best for us and the organization because we are the Catholic Church and they will never get us. 
unquote. The third story was reflected in a letter from a group of survivors of child sexual abuse by the relatively small and conservative religious sect known as the People of Praise. The organization is about to enter a process of considering reforms around sexual abuse, and the survivors encourage them to implement six steps. These are largely the same steps as the process imposed on Catholic, Catholic archdiocese around the country, and they include acknowledging that there has been a systemic failure, uh, encourage reporting and publicly revealing credibly abused clergy, including and then including women equally in leadership positions with equal votes, and changing the organizational culture around what they call right speech, which apparently is very similar to not saying negative things about people in leadership positions uh, and is similar, therefore, to the pressures that have silenced people in other denominations and which have stifled disclosure of sexual abuse. So as today's blog points out, these sex abuse candles have in common that there are only men in leadership positions, that the process for handling sexual abuse complaints is centralized and handled by a small top management committee or executive team often comprised completely of clergy. The process is obscure, secretive, and inaccessible to laypersons, let alone to people outside the particular church organization. It consistently leads to downplaying the seriousness of the accusations. It results in intimidating victims into silence and sometimes to retaliating against them. And it keeps the offenders often in positions of power so they can continue to perpetrate on new victims. Now, this is not to say that Protestant groups are without sin in this matter. I'm thinking here of mainstream Protestant denominations like Congregationalists, Unitarians, Methodists, Presbyterian Church of the USA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, but also some Pentecostal groups like the Assemblies of God. If you Google sexual abuse by clergy in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, for example, which is the denomination I'm most familiar with, you will in fact find instances of sexual abuse at individual congregations. And the allegations tend to be serious and include that church leaders knew about the abuse and did not take actions, sometimes for long periods of time. What you won't find is hundreds of cases in any given synod, and the synod is the Lutheran counterpart to the Catholic Archdiocese, or pastors who have been credibly accused being transferred to another congregation, or some centralized committee or management team that handles all of the cases and tends to hush them up, and as a result, you will not find systemic organization-wide cover-ups because cover-ups aren't possible to pull off unless you have a closely held process. You also won't find situations deteriorating to the point where an outside entity has to be brought in by the courts to supervise the process of identifying victims, rendering justice to them, and creating a more accountable process going forward. And this is exactly what happened when the courts intervened in many such situations across the country, but locally when Ramsey County Attorney John Choi played that role for the district court relative to the local archdiocese. To be clear, I am not the one to say that having women in management positions somehow magically humanizes an organization and makes it kinder and gentler. I've worked personally for a number of women CEOs or CFOs who were every bit as cutthroat and self-serving as my least favorite male bosses, 
And of course, I've mostly also worked for managers, both women and men, who were terrific people and terrific executives. So it's not been my experience, at least, that having women in top management role generally creates a kinder and gentler organizational culture. But clearly, there's something about having a woman in the room when allegations of sexual abuse are being handled that helps cut through the lame excuses and self-serving rationalizations that have embarrassingly been published and come to light in many of these investigations. Also, in addition to have women in these roles, having lay leadership is key. A process that is entirely controlled by clergy is rife with conflicts of interests. In addition, having a decentralized organizational structure helps because in centralized organizations, like the People of Praise and Catholic Archdiocese, any specific problem tends to become a system-wide problem. Whereas with a congregational structure, when you've seen one church, you have seen one church. A corollary of this is that when committees at the top levels of church organizations are largely lay people, decisions about the central organization's role tend to be more balanced. So the bottom line is that brilliant outside monitors like Ramsey County Attorney John Choi and all the people appointed in response to the Spotlight series in the Boston Globe may clean up an individual diocese or group such as the Executive Committee in the Baptist Convention or similar organizations, but as long as there is still a centralized male-dominated structure, there will will be a tendency to eventually snap back in place and begin repeating the same unjust patterns. And this is exemplified again by the fact that despite everything that has gone on for the past 10 years, the Archdiocese saw nothing wrong with placing Reverend McDonough back in a pastoral role. So even if the cleanup efforts in these three religious organizations are successful, it's important to continue long-term efforts to make leadership more gender-inclusive and more lay-led, less dominated by the clergy, and to include a large dose of delegating decision-making to local congregations and church-wide committees so centralized control can't get a renewed grip on power. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website at safepassageforchildren.org. There you can sign up for our email list, read all of our e-brief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.